0: plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello, I'm Katie Law, Deputy Literary Editor of The Evening Standard, and I'm pleased to welcome you to our first ever podcast series. We've partnered with Borough Press to bring you Underground Tales for London. It's going to be happening over the next 11 weeks, podcasts of original short stories by London-loving authors from around the world. They're all inspired, either set on or something to do with a different tube line, and they're about 4,000 words each, and we think that's the absolute perfect length to listen to on your daily commute. You can listen to them online, just go to standard.co.uk forward slash podcasts, and please Do subscribe to them. You can do this on iTunes and other podcast apps. Every Thursday, there'll be a new episode, so please tune in. Our first author is the novelist Lionel Shriver. She was the author of We Need to Talk About Kevin and also of The Mandibles. In a moment, you'll hear her short story, The Piccadilly Predicament. It's about a young woman who gets into a spot of bother on her way to Heathrow Airport. But first, Lionel joins me in the studio. Lionel thanks for coming in uh, you're launching our podcast series with your short story The Piccadilly Predicament Did you, you enjoy the story? I loved the story <laughs> I absolutely loved it. so that came out of what the, of, of thinking about
2: an assignment uh, from my the editor of that collection <laughs> who at least gave me the Piccadilly line to write about because that's the one on the way to the airport
1: Right um, and that's the one you go on uh, t- typically, yeah. the only one you. Go I mean, on. I sh-
2: it's not that I take black taxis everywhere. I take no, my no. bike everywhere. Sure,
1: but um, not, to, not to Heathrow when you're traveling to the states.
2: Yes, so, so that would be the line that I was I was most familiar with, and. Um,
1: Did you have complete freedom to?
2: Sure, I could ride whatever right. I wanted. Uh, I, it just had to be something to do with the Piccadilly one. and. Um, you know, there's. There's a lot of anxiety about um, terrorism on the tube. Mm. But it's, you know, that's very hard to go at directly. I didn't want to write a story in which something blew up and, you know, everyone's in this. That's what we have the news for. Mm. (laughs) All right, Um, I needed a different angle. And I liked the idea of just, you're given the impression that she's a rather anxious person anyway, or mm-hmm. so her sister thinks. She doesn't think so. And she spots this rucksack, which it doesn't look to be attended by anyone. She can't identify anyone on that end of the carriage to whom it would logically belong. And she starts to worry about whether or not there's something in it. Mm. And... Therefore, she starts spinning out for herself, What, as you said, what the consequences would be mm. depending on what what she decided to do. And the little complication thrown in is that she's on her way to a family occasion that she doesn't want to go to. So there's, there's an element here of, she wants something to go wrong with this trip. She doesn't want to go to her uh, parents' 50th wedding anniversary in Florida. It's horrible. Mm. Um, and so, I don't know, I just, I, I, I had, I just I had a lot of fun with it. Mm. And uh, everyone has strong feelings about the tube and little aspects of mm. the tube. Um, and though I don't take it very often, I'm, I'm sensitive to that. And that made, it, that made it enjoyable, and also it's a very good short story situation because it's contained. You are yes. literally contained. Getting
1: on and then right. get, getting to the other. And you're, but
2: you're also on a journey. Yeah. So that's also convenient that it, it, it has motion in it. It has a natural arc to it. So I don't know. I don't understand why we don't set all our short stories on the two, but it's perfect.
1: Lionel, thank you. You can read and watch more of Lionel's interview online at standard.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app, for a new episode of Tales for London every Thursday. And now, here it is, Lionel's story in full.
3: The Evening Standard and the Borough Press present Underground, Tales for London. The Piccadilly Predicament by Lionel Shriver, read by Catherine Cotts. Two 1, 2, 3 and 4s had come and gone, but this Heathrow 1, 2, 3 and 5 was the first for over 20 minutes which more than used up the tiny leeway that Tanya Tavistock had designed into her schedule. The windows of the train approaching were black with passengers. As ever, a gap in service intensified the urgency with which everyone else with destinations to reach in a timely fashion, meaning everyone, absolutely had to get onto this train, while greatly diminishing the possibility of doing so. What had been a promisingly underpopulated segment of track on the westbound platform of Green Park was now just as chocker as every other. Naturally, nobody got out, using her nacreous pink four-wheeled hard shell as a battering ram. Tanya inserted the case in the very middle of the open double doors and pressed as hard as a 136 pounds could bring to bear, the while maintaining a perfectly pleasant person reduced through no fault of her own to unspeakable rudeness expression on her face and murmuring, sorry, sorry, an octave higher than her normal speaking voice the better to make herself sound harmlessly female. Not that London tube riders cut you any slack for being a girl. But Tanya was of the view that passengers with planes to catch were structurally entitled. The scrum was so tight that the rubber seals would have pressed a pleat in her coat. The division the doors drew was absolute. You were on the train or you were not. She shot a side glance at the woeful left-behinds, who either lacked Darwinian drive or credulously swallowed the assurances on the tannoy that another one, two, three, and 5 train was right behind this one. The men abandoned on that platform were the weak, defeatist kind that mothers warned their daughters not to marry. Oh God, not that Tanya had any appetite for thinking about her mother. The hard shell was sufficiently planted into the crowd as to provide an anchor and she gripped the handle to keep herself from falling from the carriage when the doors opened at Hyde Park Corner. The bag was weighted down with a profusion of second-rate presents that substituted for a single first-rate one. Abundantly food, macadamias, jars of Harrod's caviar, the thick-cut Seville marmalade any old British couple must have missed once transplanted to Fort Lauderdale, although if so, they surely could have ordered it online. Added up, The prices of those many, small, inadequate gestures for her parents' 50th wedding anniversary actually came to more money than one big, brilliant gift would have cost, but the plethora had saved on thought. Once the carriage finally disgorged more passengers than it absorbed at Earl's Court, Tanya seized a seat. She kept her roller bag clutched between her knees. Luggage stashed conventionally by the doors might tempt an opportunist on the platform to snatch it. Rocking up to this depressing excuse for a celebration in Florida with a bunch of crap, still beat showing up empty-handed. As they shambled towards Hammersmith at the pace of a toddler with a toy wagon, nearly all the other passengers were, shockers, hunched over their phones. Obviously, Tanya had a mobile as well, though she was hardly tempted to check for still more texts from her sister dithering over the anniversary menu. At this point, their mother didn't know the difference between a dinner roll and a Nerf ball. Yet at 47, Tanya was old enough to remember the days when people no more travelled the tubes with phones than they would have with fridge freezers. Had she watched a video of this carriage in 1990, she'd have assumed it was a science fiction film. Rows of Londoners, every one of them mesmerised by a slender transfixing rectangle. In the brave new world of the film, the residents of this city would seem to have been subjugated, stupefied into pliant zombies by a maleficent bauble. More annoying than the dystopian panorama was the aura of self-importance that each user generated like a pulsating force field. For all the self-congratulation they exuded, you'd have thought they'd have invented the bloody smartphone, as if Steve Jobs had cloned himself into infinitely receding copies before he died. They all seemed fatuously to advertise that real other people were actually in communication with their own special selves. But what was most of this lot doing, really? playing some hopped-up modern version of Noughts and Crosses, viewing videos of monkeys on bicycles and watching porn. It was on the long trundle to Acton Town that Tanya noticed the rucksack. Large and bulging, it looked new. It sat upright, balanced against the door between carriages in the exact middle, as if carefully arranged there. The backpack was all by itself, with neither other bags nor strap hangers anywhere near. While the seams of its main compartment were straining, the smaller exterior pockets sagged. They were empty. In contrast to the dingy rubberized flooring, grey with gungy pink bits like compacted rubbish, the nylon glared, the rattling red of hazard signage. Alas, not only mobiles had come along since 1990, when Tanya was in her second year of uni at LSE. Back then, she wouldn't have looked at that rucksack twice. Whenever Tanya did place her bag by the doors the way you were supposed to, she kept a fierce eye on it. Yet as she scanned the thinned-out passengers at this end of the carriage, not a single glance shot in the rucksack's direction, not even when the train rolled into Acton Town and the doors sat invitingly open. The bloke with an Eastern European pallor and a misbuttoned overcoat had started to snore, and his own case was at his feet. The svelte Asian executive type, trussed in one of those suits that looked to have shrunk in the wash, was still huddled intently over his phone as if the fate of the world rested on his super-samurai rampage score. A portly mother in full West African regalia alternated between paging a colour-coded textbook full of graphs and feeding her vacant-eyed boy congealed-looking chips. Try as she might, Tanya couldn't identify a single passenger as the plausible owner of an overstuffed rucksack. Her older sister JJ always tried to cast her younger sibling as the anxious one, the hanky twister terrified of risk and always convinced the sky was falling which conveniently cast the elder sibling as confident and courageous in comparison jj had even confided that the real reason tanya's relationship broke up 9 years ago was that jeff had found living with her ceaseless what ifs and catastrophic thinking simply too exhausting supposedly jeff himself had despaired to her sister that his ex in waiting's permanent state of apprehension was joyless and destructive of his ability to revel in the present tense. Thanks, JJ. Thanks for sharing. But Tanya wasn't exceptionally anxious. She was thorough. She sensibly watched her back and tried to cover for contingencies, which had stood her in good stead at an advertising firm trying to navigate a radically transforming media landscape. If she had an imagination, creativity in this industry was a plus as well. Besides, to be wary of an abandoned rucksack on the tube, you didn't need an imagination, you just had to watch the news. That's how the memory came to her too, like a filler clip in a package on BBC4. It would have been at Baron's court. He was tall and lanky, possibly Pakistani, with a worn black and white keffiyeh around his neck and covering part of his chin. Incongruously, He'd been wearing a New York Mets baseball cap and blazing party-coloured Nikes, whose likely costs seemed at odds with his grubbier gear. What triggered the recollection was his manner. Now that, my dear JJ, was what anxiety looked like. His limbs were rigid, his movements jagged, as if seen under strobe. When he darted out the door, that was the word, darted. It had seemed a tad curious, because... Well, all right, this was the part about which she was not at all sure. Maybe she simply hadn't noticed him before, but she had the distinct impression that he'd just got on. Yes, 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 of course, very few Muslims were terrorists, but a whole lot of terrorists were Muslim. Surely having put that together didn't make you a bigot. If you see something, say something, chided overhead beside an advert for tax filing software. Clearly, the prudent thing for a responsible citizen to do in this circumstance was to ask the carriage at large if any of them owned the rucksack. Uh Aha, right. Except that even if Tanya wasn't a bigot, she was English. Presumably she would peep, sorry, with that fluting inflection she'd developed for ramming other people's knees with a glossy pink assault weapon. It was not a voice for calling to order a group that didn't even acknowledge itself as a collective. They wouldn't pay any attention unless she aggressively made a scene. At which point they'd all turn to her, most of them to the eye not born here, but to a man and woman resident in this country long enough, i.e. longer than five minutes, to know that one never talked to strangers on the tube at all, much less did one ever address a carriage at large.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
3: She would cast herself as an alarmist kook, the girly worrywart JJ had always claimed and the worst kind of kook at that, one who was threatening to impede their journey, if not to instigate a colossal nightmare in which they could all be ensnared for hours. She might even offend the Asian and Middle Eastern passengers within earshot. You never knew what provoked Umbridge these days. So the prospect of this apocryphal, sorry, struck her as not only preposterous, but as physically impossible. She actually went through the motions of licking her lips, clearing her throat, and opening her mouth, but nothing came out. Besides, what would happen if she asked the carriage at large and no one did claim the rucksack? She'd be obliged to ring 999. The train would be brought to a halt, at an actual station, only if they were lucky. Should they be evacuated in the middle of a tunnel, she would ruin these new kitten heels with reeking greasy puddles and bash up her hard shell on girders she couldn't see. And that was assuming the police even allowed you to take your luggage. And Tanya had a terror of rats. The length of the Piccadilly line would slam to a halt, if not the whole underground. Convinced that, just as in the vast majority of similar instances, this was a false alarm, everyone on this train would hate her, as hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other people throughout the system would also hate her, should they realise that Tanya Tavistock was to blame for their cold, burnt dinners, budget-busting taxis, calamitously missed appointments, and prolonged stints in gridlocked traffic while taking replacement bus services. Why, the odds were indeed that The Standard would run a disdainful squib the next day about the havoc caused by an abandoned rucksack of dirty laundry. She would miss her plane, as well as the connection in Atlanta, but with nothing blowing up or having ever threatened to blow up, the story, her excuse, would sound lame. She'd probably hide from her family the fact that she herself was the source of a tizzy over nothing. Yet would that be so terrible? This 50th in Florida filled her with dread, Was that really why the red rucksack beckoned so? Did it merely glow with the enticement of reprieve? On the other hand, if she got out of Florida because of forces that appeared to be beyond her control, she would still know that she had wanted to get out of Florida anyway, and she would worry that her family would somehow intuit that she'd wanted to get out of it. Why, in the very worst case, it would still be possible to rebook. On standby, she'd spend two nights at Heathrow on the floor. She'd get to Fort Lauderdale too late to participate in the more enjoyable pub crawls with her cousins and only get in on the punishing main event. By contrast, however, suppose that those seams really were straining from bulging bags of bolts and nails and a pressure cooker or two, like the rucksacks at the Boston Marathon, which came readily to mind as the train had just pulled into Boston Manor. Then the standard article would blaze on the front page, Thanks to the civic-mindedness of a vigilant advertising executive, proudly promoted this morning, scores of tube passengers were saved from maiming or worse. After the police diffused the device by remote control, she'd be invited on news at ten. On camera, in the cobalt dress with the comely cow collar, she'd aver modestly that anyone else in her place would have done the same, since these days we can't be too careful. The Met would identify the miscreant by viewing security camera footage their screening abetted by our heroine's admirably vivid description of the subject, down to the make and style of his trainers. She would miss her plane. Given the subsequent commotion, conferral with detectives and scheduling of media interviews, doubtless she would also miss the anniversary foo for in Fort Lauderdale in its entirety. But her absence would take a far back seat to her family's sheer relief that she was all right. Her parents, aunts and uncles and cousins, would gather round YouTube to watch the appearances of their freshly beatified celeb. JJ would have to stuff her amateur diagnosis of her younger sister's generalised anxiety disorder right up her ass through to the end of time. Nevertheless, why did it fall on Tanya Tavistock to police this train? No one else looked concerned in the slightest. Who from on high had selected her of all the people in the carriage to save the underground? and so to rescue a great metropolis from one more tourist turn-off statistic. It was one thing to choose to be the hero, quite another to have heroism dumped on you. Surprise! As if accidentally popping up at an ice bucket challenge for which you hadn't volunteered. Speaking of ice, this carriage was nippy, thanks to its having plunked at the overground station of South Ealing for five solid minutes with the doors open in February, for no apparent reason and certainly with no explanation as usual. Yet despite the chill, by arrival in Austerley, Tanya had begun to sweat. She was doubtless well on her way to ruining this peach top with unsightly yellow moons at the armpits. After unbuttoning her coat at the neck and fluffing air at her clavicle, she found a used napkin from Pret in its left pocket to pat dry the beads along her hairline. The while she continued to shoot glances at the rucksack, which by now had assumed its own persona, taunting, defiant. Coy in its retention of its secret. A last possibility remained. She clung to being a normal British person on a normal tube trip who is normally reserved, and who therefore suppresses a peculiar mistrust of some stray piece of luggage which has nothing to do with her, as silly and paranoid and none of her business, in the seemly British fashion. But in this scenario as well, her misgivings were well founded. Didn't it make sense, after all? What was this line's final westward destination? the airport, and weren't those nihilistic 'er ne'er-do-wells childishly obsessed with blowing up anything to do with planes. As the train drew into Hounslow East, Tanya was broadsided by a burst of uncharacteristic fury. All very well to live in a miraculous time when you could confer with your sister in Florida about dinner rolls while on a train to Heathrow, But despite all that lauded technological progress, the Price was also living in a time of mindlessly regressive barbarism an arbitrary, blindingly pointless destruction and loss of life. What was wrong with those people? What made them so bitter? Most of all, what made them imagine that lighting up the vacant eyes of that little boy opposite with the fires of their righteousness would make them feel any less bitter? Nothing had advanced, really. Human beings were still animals and idiots. Like, big deal. Nowadays, they were animals and idiots with smartphones. What was commonly employed to trigger a detonator? A mobile. There's your progress for you. It wasn't fair for Tanya Tavistock to have been put in this position of having to decide whether to ruin all these passengers' day. And it was other people who had put her here. Dumb people. Hateful people. People who had no love of life, who should just put themselves out of their own misery in private and jump off Waterloo Bridge or something rather than dragging a bunch of strangers into their cult of suicide too. Wasn't life hard enough without having to worry about being deliberately run over by a lorry while walking the dog, or being deliberately incinerated en route to the airport? If you don't like it on this planet, get off. Depart your wretched mortal coil. Leave life to the rest of us who have our own problems, believe it or not, without being saddled with yours. The next station is Hatton Cross, the recorded announcement lilted. Customers for Heathrow Terminal 4 change here and wait for a train to Terminal 4. The accent genteel, the feminine tones elaborately modulated. This was the fastidious voice one would use in an upscale restaurant to return the fish for being overcooked. Christ, at least they'd made it unharmed to Hatton Cross. Two more stops to go to Terminal 5. What was Hatton Cross anyway? Never mind passengers too stupid to have got on the right Heathrow train to begin with. Did anyone ever get off at Hatton Cross for Hatton Cross itself? Really, anyone? What was the purpose of it? Other than to provide yet another meaningless way station at which to sit, again, tortured, for minutes at a go, doors open, waiting for nothing, or waiting for. Tanya was perhaps more horrified by the prospect of being crippled or disfigured than she was by the prospect of snuffing it since death was so much more abstract than a face like a dropped lasagna. But she was sitting close enough to the rucksack that unless it was one of those incompetent contraptions that didn't go off or only partially exploded, the chances of fatality in her case were high. Now that's what you'd call well and truly missing your plane. She wanted to miss her plane, desperately. She was not at all sure that marking the fact that her mother had put up with her domineering father for half a century was cause for raising a glass. Her sister was kidding herself, planning the menu. In the end, they would eat whatever dad wanted. She resented that now they all had to fly to Florida for a family occasion, when every relative but her parents lived in the UK. Arguably, for her overbearing father to have bullied his wife into moving to the Sunshine State, when the good woman would have far preferred that they retired close to friends and family, only to have his wife turn into a robot in nappies, like some early generation AI which could say please and thank you, but never at the right junctures, made for an ideal revenge. But as ever, their mother had paid the price, even for her husband's comeuppance. The stroke, massive, was three years ago, long enough for the family to get used to it but also long enough to establish that despite months of physical and cognitive therapy, their mother was not going to get any better. What you saw was what you got. She was wheelchair-bound and puffy, the straps of her shoes cutting into ankles tight with edema. She smiled with half her mouth, robbing the expression of warmth. She couldn't help it, but welcoming her daughters back, she looked sarcastic. She could talk, sort of, but spoke in vague formal niceties. Fine, and how are you? Muriel Tavistock had been a vigorous woman, with a sly sense of humour behind her husband's back that functioned mostly at his expense. She'd made her own marmalade most of her life, the best in the village. As a mum, she'd recognised from the off that her children were people, with their own desires, which, however odd or trivial seeming, were worthy of respect, while woefully poor at defending her own interests Muriel had been a terrier in the defence of her daughters and had shielded her children from the harsher aspects of life with father. Yet each time Tanya had visited Fort Lauderdale since the stroke, the image of this lolling, oppressively polite impostor once again overwrote the memory of her real mother. The way you biro over a number with several lines to correct an arithmetic error in a check register until all you can see is a three and not a five. Five. The woman dissatisfied with her fish announced at last, the next station is Heathrow Terminal 5. Although if Tanya were a terrorist, she might have targeted the previous stop, three terminals for the price of one. More bang for your buck. BA's proprietary hub was vaulting, architecturally venerated and irresistibly spanking new. British Airways itself may have been privatised, but it was still the UK's flag carrier, retaining an aura of the nationally iconic. Why, it was boldly obvious that Terminal 5 was the perfect target. As the orange digital readout advised, please remember to keep all your personal belongings with you at all times. She envisaged how swiftly she would bolt for the exit, hefting the hard shell in a fluid airborne arc behind her, the very moment the rubber lips parted. She might not have wanted to fly to Florida, but she hardly wished to die to make that point, like some idiot animal. Yet jumping the gun somewhat, she leapt to her feet a second or two shy of the train's coming to a complete halt. In the judder of braking, she lost her balance, stumbling over the case she'd been clutching between her knees and ending in a painful pratfall on the floor. As she glanced up, the red rucksack filled her whole field of vision, gleaming with malice. Please, can I help you? The accent was posh, the hand extended brown. It was the slim Asian in the trendy suit and hip-narrow tie. She accepted the lift to a stand, smoothing her skirt in embarrassment. He looked like one of those bankers in the city, likely to travel with matching leather luggage that stacked with a convenient exterior sleeve for a laptop. Yet in a motion both graceful and effortless, either he was stronger than he looked or the bag weighed less than it appeared to, he slung one strap of the red rucksack over a shoulder. He insisted on writing her roll-on and lifting it briskly to the platform. I have to say, he admitted, For once they were off the train, the no-talking-to-strangers protocol relaxed somewhat. You looked so twitchy and stressed for the whole of that journey, all the brow-mopping and that. I was beginning to worry if that bag of yours contained something more frightening than clean knickers. I was only nervous about missing my flight. Besides, you'd worry about me, she asked, gesturing to her slight figure, natterly clad, considering that most people now took aeroplanes in their pyjamas, and more to the point, white. Women and converts, he said lightly as they walked together towards the escalator. Ruthless, they're the worst. The Piccadilly Predicament is a short story of the underground from Lionel Shriver. Lionel Shriver's latest novel, Property, is out on the 19th of April 2018 and will be available in audiobook, hardback, and ebook.